0: Welcome to the Weatherby's Private Bank Creating the Future podcast
1: series. I'm the Chief Executive, Roger Weatherby. On the 1st of October 2019, we held our second Creating the Future conference. The speakers invited us to consider some of the world's most challenging issues. For more information about Creating the Future, please follow the links in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this talk and thank you for listening. Now our next speaker is quite literally um, waiting in the wings and I was secretly hoping he wasn't going to pick this moment to glue his bottom to a chair, but I can tell he's live and unleashed. Some of you will recognise the man waiting in the wings, for he was a guest that last year's Creating the Future, and it's absolutely fair to say by popular demand, he returns. He is, by day, the vice chairman of Ogilvy in the UK. That's a job description for you, which he describes as attractively vague. Um, he spends the majority of his time reaching the parts that, frankly, other advertising can't reach. There are very few words to describe Roy Sutherland other than absolutely brilliant. Today, he is our guest at Creating the Future. Sometimes he's the wiki man, and he is always a thought provocateur. Ladies and gentlemen, Rory Sutherland. I've called this Bring Back the Green Cross Code. And um, I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember the Green Cross Code man. He was actually produced by Ogilvy, and the point was to persuade children in the ways of healthy and sensible um, road and traffic awareness. And it suddenly occurred to me that... Government's completely shied away from attempts at persuasion. And one of the reasons I think government's very bad at persuasion is because, well, actually, first of all, it's overly dominated by economics, which is a kind of uh, discipline which is obsessed with intervening at the centre. And... To put it another way, uh, this is the author of Nudge, Richard Thaler, who said, as a general rule, the United States government is run by lawyers who occasionally take advice from economists. Others interested in helping the lawyers out need not apply. And so the behavior of government is you default to a legal solution, and then if that fails, you try economic incentives. And persuasion, i.e. voluntary communal action, doesn't really get attempted at all anymore and I suppose part of that's logical because you naturally assume if you can first of all legislate for something uh, and if you're a lawyer your natural instinct is to deploy legislation as a solution to everything on the kind of to a man with a hammer every problem looks like a nail principle and if you're an economist you will naturally look for economic incentives as the only mode for actually encouraging behavioral change And this actually strikes me as dangerous, because I think there are things we can do voluntarily which we can't be made to do. I just want to make this point in defense of persuasion. Now let me take a very simple, trivial uh, action you could take to reduce uh, carbon emissions, okay? It's trivial, it's not going to solve the overall problem, but it would be a contribution, which is just those areas of energy consumption at home which are discretionary as to time, do them late at night. Okay? If you've got to put your dishwasher on, if you've got to put your washing machine on, do it at 10 o'clock at night, not 6 o'clock in the afternoon. Why? Because the UK grid is its kind of about a third nuclear-powered, about a third wind-powered at the right moment. And therefore, the amount of incremental carbon you're producing at that time of day is going to be low compared to doing it right in the middle of Coronation Street or at 5 o'clock. Now, the interesting thing about that as a behaviour, when you think about it, is you can't really legislate for it. And you can't really use the price mechanism to force people to do it. And the reason why is because of something that economics generally attempts, which is economics believes that to improve human welfare, something has to be Pareto efficient, which means that it has to benefit everybody while being disadvantageous to nobody. Now, the great thing about persuasion is it had one magical property, which is if you have a good reason not to be persuaded, you can ignore it. Okay, we forget that. The very fact that actually, unlike legislation, unlike uh, economic incentives or taxation, it doesn't affect everybody, is a virtue as well as a strength. Now I don't want people putting on their washing machine at one o'clock in the morning if their washing machine is immediately above the bedroom of someone else, okay? Poor person downstairs doesn't want to hear the spin cycle at four a.m. I don't want people putting their tumble dryers on at 11 o'clock if they work nights because it's not safe to leave your house when the tumble dryer's on. And the point about persuasion, about voluntary action, is that everybody's circumstances and everybody's context is slightly different. And it becomes harder and harder in an age of Daily Mail, where a newspaper will immediately write a story about the person worst worst affected by any good idea. It becomes almost impossible to do anything because of the requirement that everybody does the same thing. And so I'd slightly rephrase that question, which I thought was a great question, by the way. What are the two things I have to do? Give me two things. I'm wondering if half the solution to this, and only half of it, is give everybody five things they can do and let them choose two. And I mean that quite sincerely because actually we can probably find two things we can do which, first of all, have a little bit of selfish benefit. I'll give you an example. If you asked me to promise that I wouldn't undertake any air travel at all in 2021 or 2022, I'd be really happy to make that commitment. You've got to give me a bit of notice. I can't suddenly duck out of meetings. but. I'd be pretty happy to do that. Why? Because I actually fly quite a lot. I'm fucking sick of it, to be absolutely (laughs) honest. Okay? Right? Secretly, deep down, if I could actually make that promise, and I could actually say, I'm terribly sorry. Now, why is that valuable? Because if only 10% of people do it, suddenly, every time there's an international meeting, you have to make a video conferencing option available for the 10% of awkward buggers. And that means suddenly the 10% becomes 20 and the 20% becomes 30. Okay, One of the most important things that's happened, by the way, is the rise of veganism, which is kind of strange, because it seems to have arisen slightly obliquely, in that most people adopting it don't seem to be motivated by animal rights, principally. It doesn't really matter, to be honest, what their motivation is. By the way, the rise of veganism is hugely important. If you're a a kind of um, behavioural economics nerd like me, why? because suddenly the ratio of meat-containing and non-meat-containing food at every event and on every menu is gonna have to change. Those of you who were early vegetarians, for example, will have known what a pain in the ass it was when there was one vegetarian option, which was always something you didn't like, okay? I mean, it could be worse, you could be in France where it was simply the normal meal with the meat removed, okay? But nonetheless, it was a pain. Now, interestingly, when you've got to have a vegetarian or a vegan option, maybe you end up with two vegan options, a vegetarian option, and two meat options, the entire choice architecture changes. And so what's interesting is that most behavior change starts small and grows over time. And a minority can be surprisingly powerful. If you can create permission for just 10, 15, 20% of people to adopt behavior, then actually what happens is it becomes progressively easier for everybody else to do the same thing. A little bit of me, I don't want to be you know, picky, but I, I, was so, I would have preferred it if Greta had done that thing by video conference. And the reason is, you know, if you want to set an example, give me an example I myself can adopt, okay? Now, I'd love to be a militant user of video conferencing because I think it's actually a brilliant technology which is weirdly underused, okay? Now, I can say to Ogilvy, I'm not flying in 2020, so you'll have to sort me out some electronic solution. I can't really demand an ocean-going yacht. My influence doesn't extend to that level, okay? So there are practical things you can adopt. But it interests me because fundamentally I think what's happened is that the economic model, the sort of Friedmanite model in a way, has become dangerously dominant. And I think there's a truth that happens with all models which is often, I think, underexplored. And it's useful, by the way, if you're an entrepreneur. If you're an entrepreneur, go and ask yourself, what is it in my business category that everybody else assumes is important that they might be wrong about? In other words, after time, when everybody uses a particular model of the universe or of the economy or anything else, what happens as more and more people use it and it becomes used for longer and longer, is that the things emitted by the model becoming more important than the things it contains? And so, just to give an example of you know, one of the world's perfect models, which you might think of at first as being absolutely beautiful. Technically, it's not a map, the tube map, it's a schematic diagram. What's actually happened over time is it's it's actually started to create enormous biases in behavior simply because everybody uses it. First of all, People think the tube map, they forget that it's actually a schematic map of the tube and they start thinking it's a map of London. Now, it has no fidelity to geography whatsoever, okay? Just to give an example, the most common tourist journey undertaken in London is at Leicester Square to Covent Garden on the Tube, which is a distance between two stations where you can actually throw a tennis ball between the two if you're above ground. Um, Interestingly, the central line is hugely overused because it's kind of in a straight line and goes left to right, and so it's cognitively very easy to see the central line as a solution. The Victoria Line, which is probably the best line on the Tube, it's like teleportation basically, uh, is wiggly on the map. Cognitively difficult and therefore significantly underused by everybody, but it even creates things that complete distortions in the property market So that people in Fulham think they live in central London um, it's a fucking suburb of Oxford as far as I'm concerned um, And so over time I always tell people look when the tube map first came out and you wanted to buy a house, use the tube map because it's really handy to be close to the tube. Once people have been using the tube map to buy houses for about 30 years, the first thing you gotta do when you buy a house in London is find out somewhere which is nowhere near a tube station because the places that are near the tube station are overvalued. I had a friend who moved from Fulham, they had a child, they moved from Fulham to Hearn Hill, okay? Now bear in mind it wasn't on the tube and it had Hill in the name. They were basically expecting deliverance, to be honest, okay? And they were both completely bemused to discover on their first day when they went to work that the journey took half as long as it did from Fulham, because the tube map had completely distorted their sense of priority and their sense of distance and everything else. And I think the same thing happens with economic models. I think that as they become more and more used, it's it's an extension, if you like, of a great thing called Metcalfe's Law. I don't know if you've come across this, that any metric that becomes a target loses its value as a metric. Because as more and more people actually pursue it, then the thing it used to measure essentially becomes distorted. And I think what economics has done, which is sad, is it's tried to model itself on Newtonian physics. And it's tried to create a model of the world in which you can't create value out of nothing. And indeed, there's an underlying assumption in economics that basically human enjoyment is a product of consumption. Not of meaning, not of stories, not of purpose, not of intent, it's a product of consumption. And if you think about it, Newton's second law of thermodynamics, I think it says that energy cannot be created or destroyed. The Friedmanite equivalent of that is there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, that's bollocks, you just had one, didn't you, okay? (laughs) Now, okay, admittedly, someone was paying for the lunch somehow, but the fact was it was much more enjoyable. Indeed, it would have felt slightly weird if you'd been invoiced afterwards, okay? The point is, in economics, there's no such thing as a free lunch, in psychology, there is. In psychology, you can actually produce magic. In economics, you can't. And the great problem of economics is it's trying to actually model the world on a magic-free science where you can't create anything out of nothing. Now, just to give you clear examples where in psychology and perception there is magic all over the place, this TV screen, by the way, uh, it only produces, if you think about it, you probably bought, an ex- if you bought an expensive 4K TV, it'll promise f- a billion colours. Now, that's kind of a lie, because the TV only produces three. What's extraordinary is that all color mixing happens in the head. Did you know this, by the way, that TVs are actually species-specific? So when you bought your Samsung 4K, 55-inch, whatever, it didn't say optimized for higher primates on the box, did it? And the reason for that is that dogs don't buy televisions, okay? But the actual truth of the matter is that it so happens that the human eye Uh, There are three types of cone. They're sensitized to three kinds of color. And by triggering those in different ratios, the brain does all the rest of the work. Uh, It goes a bit further than that, actually. Magenta doesn't exist in physics at all, by the way. Um, So color mixing, uh, when you mix red photons, for example, and yellow photons, you do not get green photons. Sorry, red and green photons. You do not get yellow photons. You get red and green photons. The brain produces yellow because it can't distinguish between equal inputs of red, yellow, of red, green, and yellow. Because that's where yellow sits on the spectrum. Magenta doesn't exist at all, by the way, in physics. It's red plus blue. Um, now halfway between red and blue is kind of green, but the eye can detect green and it isn't detecting any. So magenta as a colour is actually your brain's weird attempt to explain away the, uh, the weird absence of green. Um, I mean, in a more accurate brain, it would actually go fuzzy and say, system error, or something like this. But the point I'm making here is that you can generate value from nothing. This is a terrible thing for an advertising person to say because it's what we're always disparaged for. But nonetheless, I think it's rather important um, insight, which is whether something's good or bad, valuable or, or crappy, high status or low status, is not intrinsic to the product itself. It's a mixture of what the thing is and the context in which we perceive it and the significance we attach to it. Therefore, you can tell a story about something and you can make something crap brilliant. I'll give you a perfect example. This is my favorite advertisement. You know that business where you land in an airport and the plane engines wind down and you're still a mile from the airport terminal and everybody on the plane has the same simultaneous thought which is, oh shit, it's going to be a bus. (laughs) Right? And the bus is kind of seen as the poor man's air bridge, isn't it, it's the crappy way of getting to the airport. And I'd always believed this. I mean, I mean I've always gone, oh, crikey, it's a sodding bus. And then one day we land at an airport, and the, the pilot's a kind of psychological genius. He says, um, he says, I've got some bad news and some good news, he says, now, he, he says that after we've landed, I hasten to add, you don't want to hear that at 30,000 feet, <laughs> right, okay? But he said, I've got some bad news and some good news. He said, the bad news is we won't be able to get you an airbridge because there's a plane blocking the gate. The good news is that the bus will take you all the way to passport control so you won't have far to walk with your carry-on bags. And by changing the nature of our attention, you changed our perception of the bus. Seen as a way to get to the airport, it was an inconvenience. Seen as a way of getting all the way to passport control, it was a conveyance. And so by getting us to focus on a different aspect of the same thing, our evaluation and appraisal of the thing changes completely. Now, what you've got to remember is that economics believes that everybody has stable preferences. They have, make decisions based on perfect information in an atmosphere of perfect trust. That's why they hate marketing, by the way. Because, of course, in their fantasy world, marketing wouldn't need to exist. Now, to me, the ability to make something kind of fabulous, which would normally be a weakness is surely rather good news, isn't it? Because it means you can consume less and create more enjoyment. Now this is a great 1960s advertisement which does that old ad thing of turning a weakness into a strength. Okay? So the top line is really, when you think about it, an ad for herbs. If you're just thinking, particularly through the mind frame of a a 1960s American, okay, uh, Hertz is bigger, therefore it's probably going to offer better value for money, bigger choice of cars, more more chance that my chosen car is in my specified location, big is generally an advantage. Flip it to the human by adding four words underneath so we try harder, and suddenly an ad for Hertz becomes an ad for Avis. And a surprising number of great advertising slogans do the same thing. Um, When Salman Rushdie was at Ogilvy, he uh, wrote the line, fresh cream cakes, naughty but nice. Um, Reassuringly expensive for stellar Artois. Good things come to those who wait for Guinness. You either love it or you hate it. A surprising number of ad campaigns take something which would normally, in a rational world, be a product weakness, and actually turn it into something that we value. They turn a bug into a feature. By the way, you can even do this kind of magic with price. Okay, if you had to buy Nespresso capsules in a jar, like, ne- like um, Nest Cafe, costs about forty pounds for a jar. Okay, now, the magic here is that we don't know what an individual Nest Cafe costs because, a- and as a result, weirdly, if you think about it: when you put one of these forty p capsules into your Nespresso machine at home, you don't think, "Geez, that's costing me twenty times as much as a Nest Cafe." Because your frame of reference isn't Nescafe; it's Starbucks. Anything worth forty p would cost me two pounds twenty at Starbucks. This machine's basically making me money. Okay? And so, once you understand that context, and this is true of human perception in vision, by the way, if you cover the middle of those two things, you'll see that the top and bottom of the grey and white thing, they're actually identical colours, as I've done on the right. Take it away. Your brain compensates by thinking the bottom bit's probably in shadow contrast is essentially how we perceive the world what that means is you can change behavior quite significantly by simply changing the language of choice or the nature of choice one thing that interests me by the way is generally i think it's a mistake uh, if you're campaigning to tell people exactly what they want to do because people hate being bossed around if you said here are nine things you can do you need to do four of them fundamentally, by the way, I call this placebo libertarianism, okay? We like things more when we feel we've been involved in choosing them. In fact, one of the things you notice in the the car industry is cars that are doled out in large numbers as fleet cars, it destroys your customer satisfaction figures because no one likes a car that's been given to them. The very fact that you've chosen something causes you to like it more. Now, Some people call this a bias. I go, why don't you actually turn that to your advantage? Behaviors that you've chosen, you will be much, much keener to adopt and to evangelize than behaviors that have been imposed on you. So creating some sort of placebo choice in large areas of human behavior, in other words, here are five actions, choose three. You know, donate X to the NHS, don't do this, do that. But if you give people a choice of the behaviors, then strangely, the entire hedonic mathematics changes. This was something where you simply change the language. Everybody, for years, assumed in the pizza business that um, people wanted their pizzas as soon as possible. And we said, is that because that's what they want, or is that because they think that's what they're supposed to do? We went to the website, the default was ASAP. We went to the the mobile phone app, the default was ASAP. Um, we went to the, um, uh, the, the, We phoned up pizza places. Did they ever say, when would you like it? No, unless you went out of your way to stipulate delayed delivery, they automatically assumed you were impatient. Now, why that's important is that if you actually can get people to wait a bit longer, not everybody, just two-thirds of them, you can put more than one delivery on a single bike. So the distance you have to cover to deliver, it's a bit like the Ocado Green Van. Okay? You don't have to return to base between every single delivery and it both actually saves money and I suppose is an environmental benefit as well. What we discovered freakishly is when you change the default and you made it what time of day rather than how long do you want to wait, you could push the default out as far as an hour, you didn't lose any sales, the weirdest thing of all is customer satisfaction went up by 50%. I'm not entirely sure why. But so much about human behavior is not actually the product of preferences. It's not the product of stable, transitive preferences. It's often the product of social forces, social norms. There are loads of things going on which basically economics can't understand. The genius of Uber was again changing the the frame. Everybody said people don't want to wait long for a taxi. What Uber discovered is if you can watch the taxi approaching on a map, you don't really mind how long it is. (laughs) Right? Okay? And what fascinates me in the world is there are so many things which we think we understand and we think we know what our motivation is and where we may be wrong. And this is a Pascal quote, toothpaste, okay? If I asked everybody, why do you clean your teeth? you get the stock answer, which is all about dental health, hygiene, avoidance of uh, decay, all that sort of stuff. If you actually look at when people clean their teeth, first thing in the morning, yes. Before a date, always. After lunch, never. The main motivation is actually fear of bad breath. It's entirely vanity, not dental health. Now that actually leads me to, now if you you want proof of that, think about it. Why else is 95% of toothpaste flavored with mint? Okay? It's got no dental value whatsoever. And I did ask a guy at Colgate, he basically said I was right. Why is it that I haven't replaced my wash basin? Nothing to do with the cost of doing so. If I could do it with a contactless card, I would have replaced it the day that the accident occurred don't want to sound, maybe sound too gruesome okay i dropped something in the sink it's entirely because of the coordination problem of getting a plumber isn't it okay finding a day when you're at home when someone's available suddenly i think there is three billion pounds of untapped economic value in home repair which could be solved if someone had a better approach to appointment setting with tradesmen genuinely I think the reason I'm not doing that is not economic. It's not about the price of doing it. It's entirely about the pain. Um, Why don't we use moist toilet paper? Now, the entire Islamic world washes their asses with water. The Japanese have perfected the toto loo. Think about it, okay? It's basically social norm. Uh, One guy cared about this so much that when he made the film Deadpool 2, he did this.
0: I'm gonna tell you what the big lie is. Toilet paper. What's the bad about toilet paper? Gets the job done, does it? Really? Get the job done? All right, say you wake up tomorrow morning and hypothetically find some fresh shit on your face, your cheek, maybe a little bit in the beard.
1: The hell i'm about to be what do you do, what
0: do you do do you go to a bathroom and tear off a piece of dry tissue and rub it around on your beard <laughs> a little bit and then go on get on with your day go to church maybe dinner in a movie like nothing happened where is this coming from Look, something did happen your face smells like shit right so what you would do is you would get some soap you get some hot water and you would scrub the fucking shit out of your beard for like 10 straight minutes. You You could not scrub it enough. Make me feel disgusting. I'm starting to feel. Toilet paper is plenty fine appetizer, but then Huggies natural care wet wipes. That's your main course. They're soft, they're moist. They're for babies. Finally, one more pass with toilet paper, maybe clear out that excess moisture. Maybe treat yourself to a blow and go if you can get you a hairdryer just about 30 seconds until you get
1: Now, imagine how much you would care about that issue to hire Matt Damon purely to pay that scene and put him in a fat suit to deliver, basically, a kind of calumny against dry toilet paper. But it's entirely the product of our social setting, okay? It's because the moist stuff is on the top shelf, okay, and there are only two kinds of them, and there's a huge raft of dry toilet paper. So we look at the moist stuff, and we don't go, well, that's logical, isn't it? You know, because I wouldn't clean my dirty hands with dry paper. No, we go, it's probably for weirdos and people with a medical condition. <laughs> and we buy the dry stuff. Now, my point about all this is there are loads of behaviors, beneficial and not, where it's not economics that's the obstacle. Video conferencing, extraordinarily, it's now reached miraculous level where Genuinely, there should be in-company training sessions on how to do it well. For some reason, it's completely okay, isn't it, to be shit at video conferencing. Have you noticed that? I mean, I'm at Ogilvy. If they sent me on an international trip and the second time round I came back both times and said, I'm sorry, I couldn't find the airport, right? i get fired. But for some reason, being totally crap at doing a video conference is almost a badge of honour, right? Now... These are all cultural barriers. They're nothing to do with economics, patently, because the economic arguments for this are so strong. Uh, There is one solution, the meeting owl, which I'll give a very brief plug for a company in Massachusetts. By being in the middle of the table with a 360 camera and doing AI uh, photo stuff, 800 quid on Amazon, absolute joy. But anyway, that's my last bit of product placement. Um, Electric cars. To be honest, in the UK, range anxiety is psychological, not practical. But the other problem we've got in, in the UK and actually everywhere else with electric cars, isn't really... First of all, no one's actually described their, um, their economicalness in language you recognise. Why don't we have an equivalent MPG figure? Because the second you heard that for an electric car, in other words, how far you can drive on five quid, okay, we'd be converts overnight, wouldn't we? But no one's given us that figure. So they haven't given us a useful frame of reference. Secondly, secondly, I wanted to buy an electric car. So I thought, well, before I get an electric car, I'd better go and get one of those little charging things for my house, okay? So I rang them up and they said, yeah, you can get a 250 pound subsidy. I said, off you go, come around and give me a little charger for my house. They said, you've got to prove you own an electric car. I don't know if they've actually seen Catch-22 in the Department <laughs> of <for> Transport. <laughs> My argument was, if you sell me a charger, you've done the job. Because if I install a charger at my house, I'm going to feel a bit of a dickhead if I go and buy a diesel, aren't I? Right? That's all you have to do, is sell me a sodding charger. It's job done. But again, the science of persuasion is extraordinarily weak uh, in decision-making areas. Now, this is a guy, I'll end with him, actually, because I haven't got that much time. I've probably overrun already. George Lakoff. Great guy, and he makes the point that nearly everything we do as humans, we don't actually decide objectively using the kind of logical mechanisms that we like to think. What we do is we have a perceptual frame. Now, the problem with electric cars, if you think about it, is our perceptual framework of buying anything with a plug is the longer you wait, the cheaper it gets and the better it gets. So the car industry is going to have a murderous time for five or six years, where nobody's prepared to get rid of their old car. They certainly won't buy another diesel or petrol car, but they're not yet ready to buy an electric car. Because computers, microwave ovens, practically everything they bought with a plug, they learnt that lesson. He makes the point that the frame of reference we deploy is often hugely politically biased. One of his great um, pet hates, which I think he's right about, is the phrase tax relief. Because when you use the phrase tax relief, you automatically suggest that tax is a burden and it's there to be minimized. Not that there may be actually actually selfish and collective advantages occasionally to paying more tax rather than less. Okay? I live in Seven Oaks, and to be absolutely honest, I'd like to pay more tax if they'd sort the bloody anybody else from Seven Oaks sort the fucking potholes out, right? Okay? I mean there were stretches of the Ho Chi Minh Trail that were better maintained than the A twenty five. Okay? Sometimes tax is actually perfectly in your interest to pay. As long as you all pay it equally and proportionately, some things are better procured um, collectively, some things are better procured individually. Depending on the time in human history, by the way, the ratio of what is optimal individual expenditure and collective expenditure kind of varies. You've got a very strange thing in China at the moment where you'll have someone with a 65 inch plasma TV, but they shit in a hole in the garden. You think, Slightly weird priorities, you think. You know, generally, actually, I'm of a bloke, I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, it's slightly weird that you get a 65-inch plasma TV before you've got sewage sorted, but you've got to remember that sewage is a collective problem, whereas getting a massive television is something you can do on your own. So there, is, you know, there are patently areas of expenditure which are better tackled by collective effort. And yet the whole concept of tax relief, or take this extraordinary bias which persisted for 20 years, the fact that a property price rise was sold as a good news story. Why? Nobody says great news for those of you with a full tank, petrol prices are going up. Okay, 90% of people suffer when property prices go up because if you want to buy a house or you want to buy a bigger house, which is most people for 90% of their life, rising property prices are bad news. The only people for whom it's good news are really people who are planning to downsize or people who hope their parents are gonna die soon. Okay. It really is that brutal, and yet for some reason it was positioned as a good news story. There's no reason to understand why that was so. That was an entire bias. Nobody positioned bread prices as a good news story when they increased. And so this is a great thing from um, a different economist, an Austrian-school economist. Basically, there's no sensible distinction to be made in a restaurant between the value created by the man who cooks the food and the value created by the man who sweeps the floor. What he means is that food to be enjoyable has to be reasonably good food, but the context in which you present it as much determines its value and appreciation as the actual food itself. Now, in a way, I think as an environmental story, there's potentially really good news there. Because if you can actually replace molecules with meaning, there needn't be any hair-shirted sacrifice involved. You just make less cooler than more. And I don't think it's impossible to do, by the way. You see it in all sorts of areas of taste. I would argue, by the way, that status-seeking does seem to be a bit innate, and that the very same people who are massively proud about not having a car seem to be amazingly and disproportionately keen on long-haul travel. Just a quick show of hands here, okay? How many of you have been to Machu Picchu? Okay, and how many people have been to Lincoln Cathedral, which is one day away by train? Okay, so more of you have been to Machu Picchu, which, let's face it, is a pile of fucking stones, right? At high altitude, uh, a long-haul flight away, than have been to Lincoln Cathedral. So I would argue that some of the younger generation have turned essentially what was the car as a status good in the time of American graffiti, has been replaced by obscure travel to a great extent. So one of the things we've got to be careful of is that we don't just create new status currencies which look really cool but are actually just as deleterious as the ones they replace. So that's the only only caveat. But the final thing I'd say is not very much in human behavior is either purely altruistic or purely selfish, okay? Most things are a bit selfish, and what we do when something has just one tiny little selfish advantage for us, like my not flying in 2021, okay, what the brain does, was spotted by Aesop, it magnifies the upside and minimizes the downside. Okay? And as a result, we minimize our feelings of regret. Now I'll end on one suggestion I made, which is uh, how to solve train uh, overcrowding psychologically. And my suggestion was very simple, okay? At the moment, and this is why I'm very wary about positioning, um, uh, 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 I'll I'll give you a beautiful example of a brand that's done this, Beyond Meat, okay? Nearly all vegetarian food positioned itself as an act of sacrifice and self-denial. There was a whiff of the hair shirt about every vegetarian restaurant. Beyond Meat does something rather clever. It more or less implies that this is a perfectly self-indulgent thing to eat. In fact, it's meatier than meat itself, is what the name says. You can do the same thing. There's no need. self denial is a bit dangerous, because there's a thing called counter-signalling. And sometimes self-denial is done as a form of counter-signalling. Now, the problem with counter-signalling is it doesn't scale. (laughs) Only people who are already strong in other status currencies can play that game counter signaling is where you get a kind of lead guitarist in a band who neglects fashion and personal hygiene. The point being, my guitar playing is so cool that I can actually attract admirers while neglecting virtually everything else. Okay, and it's why aristocrats traditionally dressed like tramps. Okay, the problem with counter signaling as a vehicle for environmental solution is it doesn't really spread very well. If you work in Shoreditch at a tech startup and you cycle to work on a fixie, it's because you're really cool. If you arrive at work at Pizza Hut on a bicycle, it's because you can't afford a car. So the same action actually has a completely different meaning depending on the context in which it's performed. So we've got to be really careful about the hair-shirtedness. Instead, what we've got to do to some extent is what Unilever and P&G did when they promoted soap products. Okay? You do not see advertisements for personal and domestic hygiene from the 1920s or the 1890s. This, by the way, before antibiotics, was probably the most important thing in improving the condition of human life. What they did is they sold soap on the fact that you smell great and be attractive to people, and they added scents to the soap for selfish reasons. What the ads did not say is, use pear soap and help prevent a cholera outbreak. That was the effect, but the way in which it was sold was on individual selfishness, a small amount of individual selfishness. And this is, I think, the same thing we need to look at doing here. Now, I, I mentioned my train solution, okay? All you've got to do is have one or two positives in a course of action, A versus B, and a large number of people, either those who are forced to adopt A or who actually choose to adopt A, will suddenly become more positive about A, provided they can tell themselves a story about how A is better. By which I mean A doesn't have to be objectively better than B because there's no objectivity. Okay? Instead, you have to have a story where people can say, actually, I do this, and to be honest, I actually prefer it. And this is my point about um, standing on trains, overcrowding on trains. I said, well, what, what if you change the problem? I said, at the moment, the o- your definition of overcrowding is anybody without a seat. Therefore, the only way you can solve that problem is longer trains, trains where the seats are closer together, Trains where the seat backs are like fucking ironing boards. as on First Great Western recently, okay? So you can cram in more seats, okay? Um, More frequent trains, all of that involves consumption. What about solving the problem with psychology? And they said, well, how do you do that? I said, you design a train so that some people choose to stand up. And they looked at me as if I was mad, and I said, no, 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 look at it at the moment, okay? If you get a seat on a train, you get everything. You get a seat, you get a table, you get a place to put your coffee, you get a view out of the window, you get a place to put your bag, and you get a seat, okay? If you stand, you get shit all. Not only that, but you've got to hold on to something to stop yourself falling over, so you can't even read a book or use your phone, okay? There's no story you can tell yourself about how that's preferable. Now, what's interesting is, you notice on trains, quite a lot of the time when seats become available, people who found a nice place to lean, stay standing up, okay? All you've got to do is re- redesign trains so that the seats are in the middle. You get a seat, you don't get a table, okay? You don't get a view, okay? And you don't get a plug, okay? You just get a seat, okay? Then along the windows, you have lots of places of bum rests for people, with a small ledge for your tablet, two USB chargers, a view out of the window, and a cup holder, and a hook to hang your bag. People will choose to stand rather than sit, because you've provided them with a story a plausible narrative as to why A actually may be preferable to B. But the interesting thing is, in order to get to that point, you've got to ask the deep, deep question, which is why don't people like standing on trains? And the interesting thing about that question is it's such a stupid-sounding question that probably nobody's asked it in 50 years. So one of the interesting questions I think we've got to ask to solve all problems of human behaviour is sometimes it simply involves asking a really, really silly question to which the answer is believed to be self-evident. And I think in many cases, you can solve through persuasion, weirdly, things that you can't solve through compulsion. And actually, to echo back to uh, donut economics, when you think about it, persuasion, if you do it cleverly, exploits distributed intelligence, doesn't it? Well, I hear what they're trying to say, I hear what they want me to do. Now, in my particular circumstances, I can't do A, but I could do a lot of B, right? That's distributed intelligence. Distributed intelligence, Solves problems that centralized intelligence never can and the final example of that will you believe it is the bicycle So bicycles haven't been designed. They've evolved. They started off with things where you had to walk along then people added pedals the weirdest thing was that physicists had until about 2008 no idea about how they worked and why they stayed upright they thought for a long time it was the gyroscopic effect but then they produced bicycles with opposite spinning gyroscopes on each wheel, which should have negated the effect, and they were perfectly rideable. Everything physicists did to try and destroy the bicycle, you still had a usable bicycle. So the vital thing to remember is that in some ways, the reason people are furious with government is right, but that's partly because government being obsessed with using law and being obsessed with using economics, which are both centralized solutions to a problem, don't give the public anything to do, which is precisely why I think the fury is often justified. Actually, if you said, here's the rough task, deploy your distributed intelligence to make the most difference you can, here are eight things, choose any three, the game changes entirely. But that's just my suggestion. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. more information about creating the future please follow the links in the show notes i hope you enjoy this talk and thank you for listening